Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Today, three stories about health. Coming up, why more black Americans don't choose hospice care and how some doctors are working to integrate mental and physical health in the primary care physician's office. But first, while Connecticut students do pretty well on standardized tests when compared to students in other states, low-income minority students living in urban areas still lag behind their classmates. It's one of the biggest achievement gaps in the country. This has led to many efforts to help close this gap, but almost all of these efforts are focused in the classroom, or at least on the school experience, few focused on the role of good health and health habits in achievement. Yet the CDC says hunger, physical and emotional abuse, and physical inactivity and obesity are all linked to poor grades. The good news is there are several efforts around the state to improve health as a way to close this achievement gap. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Again, 860-275-7266. Welcome your thoughts and questions about health and achievement in school. You can always comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Joining us in studio today is Dr. Lisa, Lisa Honingfeld, who's vice president for health initiatives, the Child Health and Development Institute. Welcome back to the program, doctor. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Also joining us by phone is Jody Mosier-Gill, who's assistant professor in journalism at Southern Connecticut State University. She also writes for the Connecticut Health Investigative Team, where we read her story. And Jody, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here as well. Thanks for having me. First of all, I'll turn to you, doctor, and ask about this this trend. How many Connecticut students lag behind their peers when they when they enter school, and, and what sort of deficits are we seeing in, in kids when they enter kindergarten? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, what we know uh, about kindergartners in Connecticut is uh, through a tool called the um, the Early Development Inventory that was completed uh, just two years ago in uh, in, in a, uh, just a few kindergartens uh, f- uh, across the state, and uh, very surprisingly and, and really distressing is that we learned only uh, about a third of kindergartners are deemed ready for school in terms of their socio-emotional competence. And fewer than half are, are really have the fine motor skills to, uh, to do school tasks. So that is pretty distressing, uh, especially because we know from older studies that um, socio-emotional delays have impeded school uh, kindergarten um, success but it seems that things are, are are certainly not getting better. So that is distressing. And, and and as I mentioned in the introduction, as kids get further along in school, we focus so much on what we'll call a classroom achievement, how they do on a on a science test, how they do on an English exam. But when kids are are getting into kindergarten and then coming through kindergarten. An awful lot of the linkages between learning and health are really there. You're talking about social, emotional development. You're talking about fine motor skills. These are all things that are being developed at this very early age. Yeah, that's that's very, very true. And uh, we also know that when uh, – very recent study, actually, that when children 
um, in kindergarten lag in those areas that throughout life they lag educationally, um, they have mental health problems, they are uh, criminality is a problem. So it really does behoove us to address these problems early, really before kindergarten, so that kids show up in kindergarten ready to learn. Um, you know, you mentioned the cognitive, that we focus on the cognitive. Actually, the, the studies that have been done show only 20% of kids have cognitive problems, but it's uh, closer to a third for socioemotional problems or um, for other health problems. So it's um, we, we do tend to think of the cognitive, but those other things contribute enormously to school success. So as we talk about uh, about school success later on, maybe you can just talk uh, more for a second about the data that you're gathering here, because we've heard so much about the ability to gather data on individual students, on, on finding some of these larger trends. What else does the data tell us, uh, doctors, so that we can help to set up a, set up a basis for our conversation here? Because it seems as though this, this data is very important and potentially very rich for us. I agree. Um, you know, if the data tell us anything, it's that children are arriving in kindergarten already delayed and that our, uh, our best bet is to intervene early. Uh, use our home visiting, our state's home visiting programs, use our child health providers who see just about 98% of the kids before they go to school, use our uh, preschool and child care programs to uh, to promote socio-emotional development, to promote uh, improved motor skills, to promote better health habits. Uh, certainly know that about obesity, that the earlier we intervene, the more likely we are to have uh, good results for children so that they at least they enter kindergarten on an even par and able to learn. So, so Jody, let me bring you in and tell us a bit more about these linkages between poor health for students and their overall achievement in school. Sure. So it's, it's interesting because we didn't set out to write about uh, education in general. We were looking at uh, some grants that we saw uh, that were focused on children's health. So my editor you know, asked, could I look into this? And the more I, I dug into it, the more I realized this is connected on every level. So um, across the board, people who are focused on children's health are saying, listen, if you are not healthy, if you cannot see the board, if you cannot um, feel safe at school, if you don't feel like you have a place to go home and, and you know, read and study, you are not going to do well in school. And that starts from birth. I mean, that starts from before you're born. Are you healthy as a, as a newborn? Are you healthy as, you know, a young child? And that all builds. That's a foundation that builds up to your preschool and kindergarten uh, years. And we're seeing things like, um, you know, uh, behavioral issues in preschool. So in Middletown, they have an issue where a lot of preschoolers are being expelled because they have such severe behavioral issues. And that's a health issue. I mean, that's something that they're finding the more they can intervene at the homes earlier, the more they're able to help that. This actually links in a little bit with a later conversation we're going to have around physical and mental health being seen as similar uh, and, and being linked uh, in the primary care physician's office. But it seems, Jody, that that's something that we, that we don't think about when it comes to kids, right? Be, uh, behavior is seen as acting out. It's seen as something that has to do with classroom management and not so much a mental health problem potentially or a health problem for students. And, and you're saying that addressing it in, in that more realistic way is actually something that might help students. Correct. And that's what they're finding. Um, even in, in the preschools in Middletown, they're finding 
if they can help the preschool teachers um, come up with strategies. So they're not looking at these as just kids who are bad. They're looking at them as kids who have, you know, serious issues and maybe issues at home. And they're able to come up with strategies to help them deal with those issues at home or deal with those issues they're having in general to make them able to then focus in preschool and focus on the task at hand, whatever that be. To tell us a bit more about this Middletown program and what else they're providing to students. Sure. So in Middletown, um, they were probably one of the longest-running programs. So we looked at um, several towns that are receiving this grant uh, called the Discovery Program Grant. And basically the grant says, you know, focus on children's education, and more recently we want you to do that through health. Middletown has been doing this for 10 years. They have a program called Opportunity Knox, and essentially they're using uh, different strategies to try to target children's health before they get to school to try to improve uh, certain targets. And they've targeted in their town um, preschool expulsions, as I mentioned, and childhood obesity and nutrition. So they also, in addition to um, providing support in preschools, they're looking at different ways to help bring down childhood obesity rates in their city. And one way that they're looking to do that is simply helping teachers in preschool and kindergarten integrate more nutrition programs, integrate more physical activity during the day. And one example um, I was given was, you know, if you're going to the bathroom, can you have your students hop like a kangaroo? Something as simple as that, so they're, they're moving more. And then they're looking as early as uh, newborns, they're, they have an effort in Middletown to get businesses to allow women to um, have a room or a private place in the company to nurse. So this is nursing women, um, and their belief is that if we can have more women nursing their newborns, that will start them on good nutrition from the very beginning. Doctor, how do some of these programs strike you? Um, You know, I think they're exactly on target. I think uh, there's never too much we can do ahead of time. Um, I think that our... uh, our child health providers, our preschools, can uh, our, our child care programs can always do more to help uh, parents uh, promote socio-emotional development in their children. And uh, I also think uh, good nutrition habits and uh, physical activity; those are community issues. They're uh, they're uh, you know for some families. I think that they, uh, we cannot ask them to take those problems on themselves as individual problems, but there are there things that we can do in the community or certainly things we can do through child care and uh, other settings where children receive services. And I think Jody's uh, mentioned really an excellent program in Middletown that has taken that on. Uh, the Middletown programs also uh, address dental health services, which we know uh, for a long time was another uh, area that uh, low-income children uh, were not receiving the preventive dental services they needed, affected their uh, their nutrition, uh, affected their general health. So I think uh, we do look at Middletown as one of those beacons of uh, at the community level addressing the early health issues of children. How much should schools be the the setting for some of what we're talking about here? It's a conversation we've had often on our program. 
when it comes to the the role a school can and should play in a child's life, because there's so much put on schools right now to focus on educational achievement. And often schools are seen as the only place where students get um, a square meal. It's the only place where a student gets socioeconomic uh, uh, help in any way. Well, okay, so should schools be on the hook for all this? Should somebody else be providing some of these services, doctor? Um, You know, interestingly, uh, if we let schools off the hook, they will never have the kind of outcomes that they're working towards if they don't address the socio-emotional issues, the health issues, all those other issues. They will um, if the, they will never have the the test scores they're shooting for. The children will never have the cognitive uh, achievements that they're shooting for if we don't address all those other issues. And I have to add, mm. we need to address them really before children get to school. Children need to arrive in kindergarten. You know, we call it ready to learn. Yeah, I, Jody. A last a last thing for you. And you talked about the uh, the role of the schools here. Obviously, the role of doctors in improving the health of young people so that they're able to do better in school. Um, obviously, doctors are, are squeezed to see more patients in less time. Do you have some examples of how how communities are partnering with doctors to to help? Sure. So we have there's a lot of partnerships going on in general. So in Middletown, I'll I'll start there because we've been talking about them. You know, Opportunity Knox is supported by the hospital. So Middlesex Hospital is one of their uh, sponsors. And you're seeing things like uh, Connecticut Children's Medical Center pairing up with um, service providers like The Village and Hartford to give uh, nutrition and cooking classes for families. So you're seeing a lot of partnerships like that. You're also seeing, uh, as I noted in Enfield, um, there's a doctor, Dr. Kalman's been working with their group, their discovery program group there, to make sure that doctors are on board with what the community group is looking to achieve. And really, they have the same goal, right? Doctors are looking at children's health. The community groups are looking at children's health. If they can work together, this is going to help everyone achieve that same goal. And what Dr. Kalman has said is, you know, he's found... It's really hard to squeeze in um, these developmental screenings that doctors uh, would like to be doing during regular checkups. So they're looking to partner with uh, maybe daycares or a community group or someone who's already doing these screenings. And a lot of times it's at a daycare, you know, you're finding out some information, health information uh, on children. So he's saying, can we just pair up and you know, share this information so that we're not repeating what we could be doing. You know, we could be using this time for something else, but we still have this developmental screening. We know it's being done. Maybe we have a copy of the report. Um, Likewise, you're seeing, um, and I think Dr. Honingfeld could speak to this more, there's an effort to start sharing some of this data among different community groups. So if one group is collecting data, everyone can benefit from seeing what are some of the issues and then looking at some of the outcomes mm. of these programs. Yeah, you know, just to pick up on that, that um, no children can't go to school, they can't go to childcare, they can't go to camp, they can't go, uh, they can't participate in sports, they can't do anything without uh, seeing their doctor first and, and getting a form filled out saying that these are their health problems, here's how they can participate. There is so much information in that form that uh, schools need, child care centers need. So that's one important piece of sharing information. But even if you roll those forms up to a population level, like they have done in Middletown, they can use that information to determine uh, 
Where are the gaps in our community in keeping children healthy? Are our children going to uh, preschool or child care? Have they had their dental exams? Have they had their vision screening and their hearing screening? It's, um, it is a way for, um, for, to really create a community system that supports child development and ultimately supports kids' educational achievement when they go to school. Dr. Lisa Honigfeld is Vice President for Health Initiatives, Child Health and Development Institute. She'll be uh, staying with us in our next segment. I want to thank Jody Mosier-Gill, who's an assistant professor of journalism at Southern Connecticut State University, who wrote about this issue for Connecticut Health Investigative Team. You can find more on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. Jody, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. When we come back, we don't hesitate to call our doctor when we're in physical pain, but we're much more reluctant to seek help with depression. We're finding that mental health has a big impact on our physical health, and depression can make you physically sick. We're going to be talking about integration in the doctor's office coming up next, where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky, and today we're telling three stories about health. Most people don't hesitate to go to the doctor when they have high blood pressure or unexplained aches and pains. Relatively few patients, though, go to the doctor for ailments that aren't physical, like depression or substance abuse. Physical health and mental health, of course, are all wrapped up together. A physical illness can make you depressed. Depression can make you physically sick. It has many people wondering if bringing both services together in the same office might be a good idea. Well, sounds like a good idea. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. With us in studio is Dr. Lisa Honigfeld, who's Vice President for Health Initiatives, the Child and Health Development Institute. And joining us now is Ariel Levin-Becker, who's health reporter for the Connecticut Mirror, who's been writing about this. And Ariel, welcome back to the show. Thank you. As I say, people are used to going to different doctors for different things. What's the advantage of integrating mental health care and primary care all in one place? Um, what, what doctors will tell you is that a primary care doctor will say, if I refer a patient to a cardiologist because I have some concerns about their blood pressure, they all go. Um, if you refer a patient to a dermatologist, they'll all go. Um, they'll tell you that if, if they say to the same patient, you know, I'm a little concerned, you know, you have some, maybe you want to talk about some issues with someone, I'm going to refer you to this therapist, I know. They say fewer than 25% typically make the call. So, um, one of the things that, that you're starting to see more of is um, having a mental health professional on the primary care team or sort of more closely related to uh, with the primary care office um, in a way that would sort of make that connection a lot simpler and, and wouldn't leave it to the patient to make the call. In a lot of cases, e- even if patients do make the call, they might find that the uh, the therapist isn't taking new patients, isn't taking their insurance. So even when patients do do go through the steps necessary, a lot of practices have found that, you know, for whatever reason, they don't end up getting seen. So um, a lot of the effort seems to be aimed at, at really trying to sort of avoid that gap that a lot of people fall into. Well, what are the big ba- barriers that you see? I mean, you've mentioned a few of them there. I mean, obviously, uh, maybe people can't get an appointment right away. Maybe there's, there's certainly, and we've talked about it before, there's stigma. But what are some of the other barriers to having this integrated approach right at the primary care physician level? Yeah, it's something that people have been talking about for years as something that, you know, could both save money and improve care. Um, and it just, for a long time, it really hasn't been widespread. Um, some of the barriers um, are, are there's some differences in the two professions. Um, you know, doctors and um, mental health professionals, um, there's some cultural differences in the way they operate, um, even down to one calls the person a patient, one calls the person a client. Um 
There are different payment systems. Um, there's often not funding for that kind of integration. Um, so there are a lot of sort of smaller barriers. And, and I think um, in the past, there hasn't been as much incentive to do anything about these kinds of gaps. Now, one of the reasons you're seeing changes is that um, increasingly there's a move in healthcare toward um, paying for performance, um, paying based on patients' outcomes and cost effectiveness rather than just simply for every service delivered. Um, and that really um, gives them more of an incentive to really try to address the underlying issues going on with a patient. I think there's probably a parallel um, with dental care, which is also something that's you know deeply linked with your physical health. But um, very rarely is there sort of a close connection. Um, there are different insurance systems. There are different professions. Um, and that also is very separate. Well, and, and that's interesting. The fact that those are different insurance systems is, is part of what keeps your dentist and your doctor kind of separate. I thought that the America of today under Obamacare and with, with health care and mental care parity that, you know, mental health and physical health are all supposed to be wrapped up together. But you're essentially painting a picture that they're not quite there yet. That's true. I mean, certainly in terms of insurance coverage, there's more closeness between mental health care and physical health care than there is with dental care. Um, and, and when I spoke to people about why you're seeing sort of uh, uh, bringing together of these two fields, um, one of the reasons people cited is um, that more people have health insurance in part because of the health law and that um, health plans now have to cover mental health care. That was not always the case in the past. And the other thing that you mentioned is this this pay for performance. This is something new that, that's under Obamacare, under the Affordable Care Act. Explain how exactly that, that plays out in the world of mental health care, because um, performance is something, I'll, I, I suppose, a lot different. There's a lot of measures for your physical health that perhaps we haven't arrived at quite as clearly for people's mental well-being. Yeah, and this is a shift that's still going on, and I would say it's still sort of in the infancy. Um, most people you talk to in healthcare will agree that um, at some point in the future, the way healthcare is paid for and delivered is going to change. Exactly what that's going to look like, um, I don't think anybody could credibly tell you they know exactly what it's going to look like. But basically, the idea is that right now, um, your doctor gets paid for every visit you make, every procedure they do, every test. They don't get paid. Um, to keep you healthy. They don't get paid um, if you never show up because you're always really healthy. Um, and that makes it difficult, even if they wanted to do something like um, check up on all their diabetic patients and make sure that their blood sugar was under control. There's not a lot of financial incentive for them to do that or to invest in the things that would help do that, like hiring a care coordinator. So the idea is that in the future, the, the goal a lot of people in the healthcare system have is to move toward models where um, that's the sort of thing that would be rewarded. Instead of um, just paying to do more and more, which it turns out has not been making people healthier, um, the idea would be paying um, healthcare providers to sort of manage the health of larger groups of populations. And um, they would most likely be compensated based on, you know, both meeting certain targets in terms of patients' outcomes and also cost-effectiveness. We're talking with R.L. Levin-Becker of the Connecticut Mirror, who's been writing about integrating physical and mental health services at the primary care office. Also joining us in studio is Dr. Lisa Honigfeld, Vice President for Health Initiatives, the Child and Health Development Institute. We were talking in our first segment, uh, Lisa, about integrating schools and doctors and trying to get better educational outcomes through uh, better health care for students. This is something that also seems fairly basic 
basic and something that that we might need to approach uh, in a way uh, more quickly than we are right now, integrating mental and physical health in the doctor's office. What do you say? Uh, you know, absolutely. I think the um, the imperative and the opportunity to do that in in pediatric care is uh, is really really important. It's uh, you know when you consider that uh, children uh, two and younger see the doctor 12 times and then uh, throughout their growing years go at least annually. There are so many opportunities to identify mental health concerns early when we know that intervention can be most effective and and we know when we intervene early that, as we discussed before, they're better ready for school, but also we avoid the uh, the expensive services needed later on in life. So I think that pediatric care is really that a very ideal setting for um, for integrating uh, behavioral health with primary care. It's uh, in addition to that, uh, most child health providers have a pretty solid relationship. With uh, families, they see them so often, and they are uh, they're a trusted source of care. That we we need to take full advantage of that and extend that to child health to child mental health services, and to to have a mental health provider on site as part of the team allows that to happen seamlessly within the practice. Something we have talked about in the past, though, and I think even with Ariel on our program is is what happens uh, throughout the course of a child's life if, say, they ha- have some sort of a mental health issue, whether or not there are actually enough uh, pediatric mental health providers out there to do the work. I mean, d- is that one of the barriers, doctor, that we just don't have enough people who practice in this field to be able to get the sort of help for kids, you know, before they even get to kindergarten age, the the sort of treatment that they might need or even uh, a checkup that they might need. Right. So that's definitely true in the mental health field in terms of child mental health professionals. Um, but there are other barriers that that compound that. Uh, one Ariel mentioned is um, the funding streams and that oftentimes for children to receive mental health services, they need a diagnosis. And when we look at children who are two, who are three, who are one, who may be at risk of serious mental health problems, they may not have a diagnosis. So those uh, mental health services can't be paid. Uh, That's one. Also, um, mental health professionals training does not always not fully address that at-risk group of children. And that's unfortunate because that's where we can make the biggest difference in terms of uh, taking the the glut out of the system later on by addressing problems early and uh, uh, so that many children avoid having to go to the mental health providers later in life when their problems are much more serious. Do do those seem like the barriers to you as well, Ariel? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I I think one thing also that that I've heard from doctors is that in some cases, one of the frustrations they have if they're not linked up with um, a mental health provider is that um, either they don't sort of go in and look for they don't they don't necessarily do screenings for depression or things, um, or if they do, they they spend a lot of time trying to they have a really hard time linking patients with care afterwards. So one of the um, I think one of the things people are looking at is is ways to better link. Uh, primary care physicians with um, either some sort of consultation or 
um, a mental health clinician so that, um, you know, a doctor can say, oh, I understand this is an issue. Here's a person you can talk to rather than sort of, you know, I've heard from pediatricians who, you know, say they just they spend a long time and their staff spends a long time finding someone will take an appointment begging and um, that becomes a real barrier, too. Uh, if you want to join our conversation, 860-275-7260. You can also tweet at us at where we live. Yvette tweets, cable companies have bundles to serve customers better. Why can't consumers have physical, mental, and dental? Sign me up. So she wants a bundle of health care coverage. Let's go to Michaela, who's calling from the Hartford area. Hi there, Michaela. Hi. Um, the way that I understand the integration of behavioral health into the primary care setting is that those primary care physicians will be responsible for either developing memorandum of understanding with select behavioral health providers, or it's this push to get everything under the same roof. And one of the concerns that I have about these out, the outcome of this push for this change is that it's going to really limit patient choice and access to providers who are really aligned with their values and the qualities to lead to effective I, I, and, Michaela, your line's breaking up a little bit, but I think uh, your question for Ariel, I, th- I think we, we get it. I mean, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, that's an interesting question is, is you know, on the one hand, um, the providers might have relationships with other providers that they're comfortable with. On the other hand, how do you make sure that um, for the patient or the client, um, they're able to see the providers they'd like to see? Um, that That's definitely but what, but we also see, I mean, part of the push in, in medicine doctor, especially in, in a state like Connecticut, we have three or four large hospital groups that have an awful lot of control over, I suppose, all the oxygen for healthcare in the state. And because there's so many integrated services within these groups, it, it is very easy, as the caller might suggest, to have your primary care physician uh, refer you to people within that system for mental health, for some other sort of, of health care need. So the patient is saying, well, maybe this is good to have a medical home that's all under one roof, but there's not as much choice for me. What do you say? Uh, you know, I, I think that is an absolute concern. I, um, you know, it's the cost and the benefits of uh, having, uh, ensuring that you have that connection, ensuring that uh, what happens in uh, your child's mental health services is uh, well integrated with what happens with their physical um, health services, as opposed to um, to going outside and um, worrying or uh, doing a lot of that coordination yourself between those two sites. And granted, there are a lot of parents who are very uh, uh, competent and interested in coordinating that interface themselves, but there are a lot who are not, who are overwhelmed by that and would benefit from that seamless connection and that well-integrated service. I want to go to another phone call here. Pam is calling from Hartford. Hello, Pam. You're on Where We Live. Hi there. So my question is, is with corporate America, and I say that in a very loose term, you know, companies with, you know, thousands of employees offering employee assistance programs, um, why are employees so afraid to take advantage of it? Um, I myself have used it and found that I've gotten better care than I've been able to find on my own through my own insurance company directories. Before I actually turn it over to our guest, Pam, so you're talking about um, employee-assisted programs, and these are, are often offered outside of any other health care plan for a company, and you're able to get mental health services. You're saying that, in your experience, a lot of people just, just aren't taking advantage of these services. I'm saying that they either don't know about it or they're 
either maybe embarrassed, afraid, ashamed, or maybe they just don't realize that it's something that could actually work for them, or maybe they don't think they have a problem and they just really don't know how to go about it. Uh, Pam, thank you very much for the question. Ariel, do you have any thoughts? Uh, no, I, I, that's a really good question. Um, I, I, I think, you know, one thing that often comes up with, with any sort of mental health care um, is, is um, there's a stigma that, that, you know, often people cite that as a big barrier to keep people from from seeking care. And, and certainly when it's connected to your employer, I can imagine that um, that might be an additional concern for people if they're not made, it's not made really clear what the safeguards are in terms of their privacy. But and that's But I think it points out one of the the interesting uh, concepts here behind this this integrative approach, which is if we look at our our suite of insurances or plans that we get from our employer, we have on one hand dental care. It costs us something. It means we're going to have to shop for a dentist under one uh, column. Uh, we're going to have health care. We're going to shop for uh, doctors under another column and all the assisted stuff that goes under there. And then in the third column, we provide some sort of employee-assisted program, which... I, I can say honestly, can be incredibly useful to people. Maybe it's underutilized, doctor, in part because, well, that's three columns we've got to shop under. It's three different things. Part of what we're talking about today is wouldn't it be great if somehow or other employers were able to pay for one suite of services that just got you everything under one under one roof? Yeah. I, you know, that issue of all those separate funding streams with all the different eligibility requirements um, and all the different spheres of utilization really um, compromises all the, uh, not all, but many of the benefits of, uh, of having health insurance and of the Affordable Care Act and ensuring that all Americans have health insurance. It's um, I, uh, Ariel's written really some great uh, some great articles on uh, yes we all have health insurance but it's always not so easy to use and that's really our, our probably the next frontier on this is uh, putting our services together in a way that make them more accessible to people yeah actually healthcare access as opposed to just making sure that we have have health insurance I, a couple last questions for you Ariel we mentioned some of the some of the models. I mean, do you have any that, that you want to talk about that you saw as really useful here, different ways to integrate care in the way that we're talking about here? Yeah, just quickly talk about two, and they're sort of opposites. One, um, I visited a practice that's part of Hartford Healthcare, but it's a primary family medicine practice in Colchester. Um, and what they did is they brought in a psychiatric social worker who's part of the primary care team. And so um, if a doctor is talking to a patient and um, maybe the patient has some anxiety or is dealing with some grief, um, he'll say, you know, I'm going to go down the hall and get my colleague, Janine. Um, you can meet her. And and then, you know, if if the patient would like, they can, you know, meet with her for three or four sessions. Um, often that's enough to sort of take care of of the issues. If not, you know, she'll refer them somewhere out. So that's one model where it's all done in the primary care office. Um, there's actually a totally separate model um, that the state is running um, through local mental health authorities, and that's for people who have um, both serious persistent mental illness and a chronic medical condition. And the idea there is sort of flipping the model on its head and saying that in, in a lot of cases, there are people who much more regularly are seeing a mental health provider. Um, and often for them, the challenge is um, having good access and a good relationship with um, a medical provider. And so that model sort of takes the opposite approach. It's called a behavioral health home, although it's not a residential place. It's just a home in the sense of the home base. Um, and there, 
the you have these um, 15 local mental health authorities that are sort of taking on a larger role um, for the the both the mental and physical health of, of their clients. And so doing things like coordinating um, their care with uh, the medical system, doing a lot of health and wellness type things, um, trying to um, in, in a lot of cases, they're, they're clients who have histories of trauma, which can make it very difficult to um, feel comfortable getting a medical exam. So a lot of work with patients on, you know, helping them feel comfortable, uh, maybe getting screenings, that sort of thing. Um, so it's sort of an opposite approach. But um, in both cases, it's sort of trying to, to start where the patient or the client seems to be most comfortable and sort of bringing the services uh, sort of around there rather than requiring them to sort of figure out how to navigate these two separate systems. A, a very important last question for you then. How do programs like this or ideas like this help uh, drive down or drive up the cost of health care? I mean, are these more costly to implement or long term? Will this end up saving us money? The model I just mentioned, um, behavioral health homes, um, the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services, which runs it, believes it will be budget neutral. Um, certainly, People think if you get more people into primary care, you address um, issues like depression, anxiety, you address them early, that can sort of stave off a lot of problems. Certainly, if you have uh, untreated depression or anxiety, that can make it much more difficult to take care of things like heart disease or diabetes. So there is a sense that, you know, this could improve people's health and that could, you know, lead to fewer medical complications down the road. Um, But we'll see. Uh, Ariel Levin-Becker writes about health care for the Connecticut Mirror. Ariel, good to see you once again. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I just want to thank, uh, thank Dr. Lisa Honigfeld, who's Vice President for Health Initiatives, the Child Health and Development Institute. Thank you so much, Doctor. Thank you. When we come back, we're going to talk about hospice, how it's becoming a desired alternative for many people who want to spend their final days in their own home with those they love. Fewer African Americans than white Americans opt for hospice. We're going to talk about why coming up next, where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's show, after weeks of dismissing the idea of a special legislative session to deal with the budget, there's more bad budget news, so it's pushing Governor Malloy in just that direction. On our weekly news roundtable, The Wheelhouse, we will discuss this and all the week's news, including we'll get uh, get an update on a plan by the state's Board of Regents that has professors in the state university system fighting mad. Hope you can join us tomorrow in The Wheelhouse on Where We Live. According to the National Institutes of Health, over 50% of health care dollars are spent on 5% of the sickest people, primarily on high-cost interventions during the last years of life. Many are turning to hospice to avoid painful treatments that diminish the quality of the last days and keep them from the people uh, that they love the most. But African Americans reject hospice care at a much larger rate than white Americans, only about a third of blacks compared to almost 50 percent of whites. We're going to try to find out why. If you want to join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can comment on our website. WNPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us is Sarah Varney. She's senior health policy reporter for Kaiser Health News. You hear her often on NPR. She's the author of the book XL Love, How the Obesity Crisis is Hurting America's Love Life. She wrote a story about African-Americans in hospice care for The New York Times. Sarah Varney, welcome back to Where We Live. Thank you so much. I gave you some of the statistics up front, but but talk a bit more about this disparity and why we're seeing this uh, between blacks who use hospice and whites who use hospice. You mentioned that about um, 50% of whites choose hospice at the end of life. This is according to national Medicare data, but that only about a third of African Americans do. The numbers are um, even more stark when we look at advanced care directives. So these are legal 
documents essentially that tell your loved ones um, or the hospital what you'd like to do if, if you become incapacitated. Um, about 40% of whites over the age of 70 have those documents and only 16% of African Americans. Um, so I spent quite a bit of time looking into this issue. I did a piece for the PBS NewsHour and then as well as the story for the New York Times that explored these issues. And it was really fascinating talking to African-American palliative care uh, researchers and doctors themselves and many, many patients. Um, uh, and really what you hear is that there's a real toxic distrust of the U.S. healthcare system. I think um, it's important to remember that the Tuskegee syphilis study, which left many, many African-American men untreated for syphilis, um, which has not only affected those men, many of them died, or, um, but it also affected their offspring. That experiment didn't really end until the early 1970s. So many of the people, African-Americans who are um, seniors today, for them, that's, that's a fresh memory. Um, you know, they also have memories of, uh, of segregated hospitals. They have memories of trying to go to a doctor's office and seeing a sign that says no Negroes. So even though we sometimes maybe think that these are kind of cultural artifacts, uh, for many African Americans, those are very, um, uh, you know, present memories for them, um, and they continue to see discrimination in the healthcare system today, which we actually know, looking at the data, um, also plays out. We know that um, doctors, when presented with a white patient and a, a black patient who say the same uh, symptoms, this has been repeated in many, many studies. Um, African Americans are often treated differently than whites with less aggressive treatment. Um, so there remains this very toxic distrust of the U.S. healthcare system. And I think what I heard was, you know, we've been fighting so long to get access to quality medical care. Now you're telling me that there's nothing left you can do for my mother and you want to essentially, quote, unplug her. Um, and there's a lot of distrust of that advice. It, and and that, that, of course, is so it's so tragic and so difficult. But a lot of what you've you've said, including these many, many studies about how physicians often treat African-Americans as opposed to white patients. This all points to distrust in the system and why African-Americans might not seek medical care as readily or they might not trust what their doctors have to say. But why does it extend to hospice when, when we're coming to the very end of life? Sure, there may be fears that maybe doctors are saying they, they want to unplug a loved one too soon, but hospice is seen by so many people around the U.S. as a as a comforting way to spend the last days. But this distrust even extends all the way there, Sarah, which I find sort of shocking and a bit alarming. Well, I think it really gets down to the, the two central issues. One is, imagine you're in a hospital. Your your mom is not doing well. She's failing. Um, a doctor turns to you and says, there's nothing else we can do. Uh, we really need to take, quote, comfort measures. Mm. We really need to turn to hospice. Even these words don't really translate is what I, is what I heard from researchers who study this issue, that, that the term, even the term hospice um, has a negative connotation in the African-American community. The term comfort care has a negative uh, connotation. There is this sense that you don't want to pay for the added measures that I want done to myself or to my loved one, um, and that's why you're doing this. There was a lot of distrust, particularly of the insurance system, even though almost all of these people that we're talking about are on Medicare. What I heard at this fascinating uh, roundtable in Los Angeles where we brought together a group of um, elder African-Americans was, you know, even if, I tell, even if I fill out this advanced directive and I tell my insurance company that I want to have every possible measure done, they're not going to do it anyway because they're not going to want to spend the money. So the level of distrust, really, it's not just the doctor giving the advice, but it's the, it's the hospital trying to make room for that bed so that a private pay patient, somebody with, quote, better insurance, I heard this a lot, 
would come in and pay more money. Um, and then the insurance company themselves, uh, even though that's Medicare, uh, having some uh, sort of nefarious uh, uh, you know, motivation here. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is um, what I also heard uh, from many African-American researchers who study this issue and also from many African-Americans themselves was, a, was that perhaps there's a religious prohibition against uh, hospice and that there is perhaps redemption in the suffering that occurs at the end of life. Um, and this hope that even though there's a trust in God, that God will do what he wants to do at the end of my life, it's his, ultimately his decision, that it's my job and my family's job to keep me alive as long as possible, no matter what, take whatever measure possible, so that a miracle can happen. Um, and so what you hear from black doctors who work in palliative care is that they really are going into the churches. This is what this is really what I focused on in my story in The New York Times is these efforts in the African-American churches um, to try and uh, give people uh, you know, more information about really what hospice is. And um, there's a story that I, uh, a family in Buffalo, New York, um, a pastor and his wife, who um, sadly uh, lost two of their three sons to sickle cell disease. The first one died a very, very painful death. Sickle cell disease is a very painful death, um, very painful disease. And then they were convinced to try hospice with the second one, very reluctantly. They did, and um, they are now sort of proselytizing, if you will, about hospice in the black community in western New York. Um, so it was amazing to hear their story, just how much they had to struggle to even agree to do the hospice, and then how shocked people in their community was that, oh, their son was able to stay at home um, and be taken care of by a team of nurses. You know, people were shocked. They said, oh, well, when you go, when you put a loved one in the hospice, they just send them away to die. They send them into a corner to die, and we don't do that to, we don't do that to our family members. So a lot of it is just taking individual experiences like the one that you have and explaining to people who maybe don't know that this is really what we're talking about when we talk about hospice. We're not talking about some nefarious plan. We're not talking about the other thing. Exactly. And it's interesting because, you know, starting in January, uh, Medicare is going to start paying doctors now to have these end-of-life conversations, essentially. these are This is the you know, the death panels from a number of years ago. Hmm. Like as a country, we've, um, many people would say, thankfully have moved on from that conversation, and, and you know, Medicare is going to go ahead and starting in January, going to pay doctors to have these conversations. So there is some concern among African-American palliative care doctors that just because now it's going to be paid for doesn't necessarily mean that this issue that we've been talking about is going to be addressed. So unless you really think about you know, how does this message need to reach African-Americans in a way such that, um, you know, that, you know, their, 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 their concerns, their distrust are very well rooted. Um, and so it, it can't just simply be, oh, you need to trust us now. You need to trust hospice. It really needs to be these personal stories from African-Americans themselves saying, you know, I did this and here's what my experience was. And important to note here is the reason why coming up next year Medicare starts to pay for this is because, well, this whole system costs an awful lot of money. I said this at the top. I mean, a lot of the cost of health care is really in this last year of life. And so, you know, the government is trying to bend the curve back on that. And I assume a big part of trying to bend the curve is to try to convince more people that hospice is something that's that's going to be useful for them and useful for their families. Yeah, I think if you talk to people in the palliative care world, you know, they're very hesitant to even talk about the financial part of this. I mean, obviously, the bean counters know what's going on, um, and that's an important thing to recognize, given that we spend, you know, practically 20% of our GDP on healthcare. So something has to change. No other country in the world does that. Um, but I think, 
you know, among the palliative care specialists, it's been, let's talk really about, as you mentioned in the beginning of the segment, you know, the quality of life. Um, you know, when somebody is hooked up to a machine, when they're on um, on uh, ventilation, when they're uh, really dosed up on a lot of drugs, it's very hard for them. You know, there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of stress and anxiety, not just for the person who's dying, but also for the family. Um, so I think there's a lot of, you know, there's a desire to talk about the sort of the quality of those last months or weeks of life. Um, the other thing that I heard in the African-American community, but I think you share this uh, really across the board, is this concern that I have to I have to forego any curative therapies if I choose hospice. So in order for Medicare to pay for hospice, you have to essentially be in the last six months of your life, which doctors will tell you is a very difficult thing to predict. Um, and you have to forego any curative therapies. Now, there is a pilot project going on with Medicare right now where um, a significant number of Medicare hospice beneficiaries are going to be able to receive um, therapies along with hospice treatment, which we've actually found is, um, is quite beneficial. Um, people, of course, still die, but they die in a way that is, is less painful um, and less traumatic um, and less medically intensive. So I think that will go a long way if that is a policy that ends up getting extended to all hospice beneficiaries. That will go a long way into, you know, reassuring people that this isn't just simply about denying you expensive treatments, but this is really about, um, you know, making sure that those last few months or weeks or however long it is um, are as best as they possibly can be. Sarah Varney is senior health policy reporter for Kaiser Health News. You can find her work often on PBS, NPR, and in the New York Times. She's also the author of the book, XL Love, How the Obesity Crisis is Hurting America's Love Life. Good to talk to you once again, Sarah. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Our program today was produced by Betsy Kaplan with help from Lydia Brown, Tucker Ives, and Josh Nalea. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Our digital editor is Heather Brandon. The executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Talarski. Continue this conversation online. Go to our website, wnpr.org slash where we live.